Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. Each week, I present interviews with independent bookshop owners from around the globe, authors, and specialists in subjects dear to my heart the environment and social justice. To help the show reach more people, please share it with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. You're listening to episode 221. Dina Gachman is a Pulitzer Center grantee, an award-winning journalist, and a frequent contributor to The New York Times, Fox, Texas Monthly, Teen Vogue, and more. She also writes a monthly movie column for The New York Times. She's a best-selling ghostwriter, and her first book, Brokenomics, was published by Hachette Seal Press. Her new book of essays about grief, So Sorry for Your Loss, was published in April 2023 by Union Square & Co. Dina spent three years as head copywriter on Clio award-winning content for Uproxx Studios. She has appeared on ABC's 2020, CBS, We Are Austin, Chicago's WGN, and Texas Standard. She's written two comic books for Blue Water Comics about legendary superheroes Marilyn Monroe and Elizabeth Taylor. She lives near Austin, Texas with her husband and son. Hi, Dina, and welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Let's begin with learning about you and where your interest in writing derived. Sure. So I'm uh, born and raised in Texas, so Fort Worth and then Houston. And I loved writing really as long as I can remember. Um, I think I wrote my first book when I was about first grade. I stapled a bunch of pages together and it was about horses because we all loved horses (laughs) at that age. But I just always loved reading. I loved words and language and probably started journaling about seventh grade very seriously. I still have all my journals here at my house. Um, and they're hilarious to look through because a lot of them are about, you know, boys being mean to me, but, um, then they get a little, then they get a little deeper about life and things like that, but really it's all I've ever wanted to do. And so I just was always buried in a book. Um, even my like high school papers when we had assignments, I took them very seriously. Like I lived in the library. I did very heavy research, you know, sort of nerdy about it. Um, and I think, you know, looking back, that was maybe like the seeds of journalism for me is, you know, doing all that research and writing books, but it's really all I've ever wanted to do. I think there was like a brief moment I wanted to be an archaeologist, but that did not last. So, but it took, it took a while for me to get to the point of being a professional writer. I worked for the school paper in college, but I, I also waited many tables along the way. Oh, join the club. In fact, I actually enjoy waiting tables. I don't know why, but I think it's because you meet so many people. Yeah. (laughs) And I also wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a little girl. Oh, that's funny. Maybe it's something about uh, being so young and wanting to delve into our past as females. I don't know. And I think there's like a link between writing and archaeology because I have another writer friend that she also wanted to be an archaeologist. It's very strange. So that's worth looking into maybe. Yeah. Maybe, yes. Dina, one of the things that attracted me to your work was that you write on a diverse array of content and media. And there are examples of this on your website at dinagachmanwrites.com. And I'll make sure to put that link in the show notes. So I was curious, do you work through an ad agency or are you freelance? 
I'm freelance. So for a time I had a, I've, I've gone through phases in life where, like I said, I, I will wait tables and write on the side. And then I'll, um, a lot of the branded content was, a, I had a full-time office job, you know, working for a creative agency. So all of that was done with, with a, you know, office job, you know, for a couple of years, writing branded content, again, basically advertising, but now I'm fully freelance. Um, so I have a, I have a book agent and then, um, I do a lot of ghostwriting. And so most of my ghostwriting comes through my agent, but any articles and things like that are all just either me pitching or editors coming to me. So it's, it's fully freelance now. And is it mainly copywriting when you do the video content? It was at the time. I don't do it anymore. Um, but at the time it was copywriting and pitching ideas for videos and um, writing scripts. It was actually, it was actually pretty fun, but I much prefer the, the, the free ranging <laughs> freelance where I can say, Hey, I want to write about this random topic and, and pitch whoever's best for it. I enjoyed reading a couple of your articles on your website to specifically come to mind. One was titled Rats in the Walls, Baby on the Way, which was wonderful. And the other one was your story about the Jean-Michel Basquiat exhibit uh, in LA. It's amazing. The one in LA, it's incredible. Yes. And that exhibit is open. It's been extended actually in Los Angeles until January 1st, 2024. Okay. Let's talk about your new book. So sorry for your loss, where you write about grief, specifically the death of your mother and sister. Did you journal during the last year of your mother's life or were you unable to put pen to paper until much later? I was unable to write anything once once my mom was diagnosed, which was 2015, she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. I was working at the ad agency. So I was doing that kind of writing, but I, looking back, it was funny. I did think about this, you know, my, my creative writing just for myself really kind of stopped. Um, and looking back, I think I just had no idea how to process what we were going through. And really the first thing that brought me back to the kind of writing that I really love to do was about a year after my mom died, I wrote an essay about we had this shared love of Hollywood red carpets. And so I wrote about the fact that watching the Hollywood red carpets was a way for me to keep my mom's memory alive. And I that was my first New York Times byline. And that was, I remember writing that and thinking, okay, I think I'm back. Like I think I can do this. But yeah, for for a very long time, I just couldn't even put pen to paper, as you say. It was it was really hard. It's like you don't want to miss any part of their last part of their lives. So to even pick up a pen and paper takes that away from being with them. That's how I felt with my mother. I just kept hoping that I would remember certain things later. You know, the parts that stab you in the heart. Yes, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the parts that are burned into your brain. There's, yeah, I didn't take, you know, I wasn't taking notes or anything, but there's just certain things that you just never forget. Um, you know, like I, my mom's hospice, she's on hospice for eight days. So before I even wanted to write a book, I wanted to write about that experience because it was pretty um, wrenching and singular for us. And I didn't, you know, but I didn't take any notes. I just, you know, wrote from memory. But I think when you're in that grief, it's really hard to be creative. At least for me, it was very hard to be creative. Yes, it is. And the most important thing is scheduling, uh, making sure they're comfortable. The last thing you think about are your needs. It's more about what the person suffering needs. When is their medication due? Uh, yeah, it's surreal looking back, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I wasn't thinking much about my own <laughs> creative needs at that time, that's for sure. 
And your son was quite young when you were going through this with your mom, right? He was. He was um, 13 months when she when she passed away. So he was really little. So also that probably contributed to the, f- the fact that my brain was pretty much shriveled up um, having a little one. But yeah, so I was, you know, also had to take care of him and I had a full-time job and it was just, it just wasn't even part of what I was trying to do. So it, t- it took a while. Something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that many families lost multiple family members during the pandemic. And worldwide, we watched the death toll rise daily. The entire world population shared and is still sharing a collective grief. What toll do you feel this has on humanity and on those still reeling from heartache, along with the financial stress of unpaid medical bills? I know, you know, I think one thing coming through this pandemic, which is not over, obviously, and, you know, tell that to anyone who lost a loved one to say it's over is a little disrespectful. But um, I think that on the one hand, I do think people are talking about grief more openly and and death as well, because we've all been forced to confront it, you know, right there in our faces every single day um, in 2020, especially. But I think that it has, you know, the, the last chapter of my book is about collective grief, because I do think it is something that is so important. And we sort of lost that, you know, we've sort of, at least in this culture, and I know in the UK too, I've talked to people there that you're supposed to kind of tuck it away and cry at the funeral, but then move on. And I think coming through this pandemic, I think there's kind of a feeling of, no, that's actually not what we're supposed to do. Like we can openly grieve. You don't have to be weeping in the streets and, you know, but I think hopefully it's allowing us to be more open about it on the positive side. But I know there's a lot of people still obviously struggling and suffering and, and, you know, it's, it's going to take time for that kind of healing. But I think the more we can all talk about it, it'll make people feel less isolated because that's, it's really easy to become isolated and feel like you're the only one. Getting back to collective grief, it's an interesting phenomenon. It's overwhelming. Uh, But then to have unpaid medical bills on top of this grief, oh my goodness. When I was reading your book, something came up for me and that was when my mother was dying, she had cancer and dementia and she was in a nursing home in Tasmania, Australia. Now, we had to rely on the nursing staff to administer her morphine. And, uh, you know, if there was something going on with another patient and they couldn't get to her in time, it was so frustrating to see her in pain. But in reading your book, I realized you were able to administer the morphine. Is that correct? Unfortunately, yes. (laughs) Yeah, she was at home. um, So we decided she had been in the hospital before that, but we just decided let's bring her home because, you know, a week of the beeping and the machines and it was it was time to go home. So but what we didn't realize was that we would be the ones doing the medications and making sure we were on time. And so that was a huge shock. Um, but yeah, here when you're at home, it's, it's the family doing it. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. You think yeah, at-home hospice is like the humane, kind thing to do, but it's really hard on the loved ones. But, you know, I guess in the end it was nice because it was she was at home. But yes, my sister and I were making these like illegible charts trying to remember every two hours. And it was, um, it was pretty, it was very brutal. And that, you know, that's one of the things that I think that I say in the book, it's not the hospice nurse's fault, right? They're doing their job. I'm sure it's an incredibly hard job, but it's the way the system is set up. It's very um, clinical and it's very like, okay, get to as many houses as you can. And so we were doing it and uh, we did have, we did have, I write about this in the book, but there was one episode where we lost the morphine. We could not find it. And it was terrifying because they weren't going to 
be there in time. And it was just, we found it eventually it was right in front of our eyes, but we were very tired. <laughs> but we did have a, a moment where we thought we lost it, which was not fun. Lost it in more ways than one. Exactly right. Yes. On page 151, you speak with Khalil Sakakini, a pet loss and bereavement counselor and CEO of Animal Talks, a Boston-based nonprofit that helps people navigate the grief of a pet. For children, losing a pet is often the first time they experience grief. Sakakini explains, grief is grief. Can you expand on this? I did speak with him. So I interviewed, you know, the book is part memoir, part narrative reporting because I it's it's largely my story but I talked to a lot of experts and other people about their grief so I did speak to him and I thought it was so interesting that his whole entire practice is pet grief um and it's funny because that chapter was one that I I actually got cold feet about I told the editor I don't I don't think I want to put this in here because I thought maybe it's going to feel too frivolous you know I'm talking about losing my sister my mom and I'm so glad that she pushed me to keep it because we got a dog like pretty much right when I was writing the book. And, I, and as soon as we, he came home, I was like, okay, this is extremely valid because I love this animal. And I, and it comes up a lot. A lot of people are like, you know, this, this isn't a tiny type of grief that's often acknowledged in the same way. Um, and it's so valid. And so when I talked to Sakakini, he, he basically was saying, you know, he said grief is grief, meaning whether it's a parent or a pet, it, it is all should be validated and those feelings are real. And he also said that a lot of people that come to him will say like, you know, I, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I'm more distraught over my dog's death than my dad's death. And I actually heard that from a friend recently too. He's like, this is harder. And it's interesting because what he was saying is that those, the, our relationships with our pets are so pure, right? There's, there's no inviting. There's no like, you know, they didn't gamble your money away. It's just such a pure love. It's really hard to, you know, let go of that. But I also started to notice with my son, you know, he's little and I'm trying to talk to him about my mom and my sister and in an honest way and, but also not scare him. <laughs> and so he was probably about four, I guess we moved into this house and there's, you know, it's Texas, it's, there's toads everywhere and, and toads get smushed. And so he became obsessed with a toad he named Adrian. And so he thought every toad was Adrian <laughs> and he wanted Adrian to sleep and sleep in the bed with him. And he didn't, but, um, one day there was a smushed toad in the driveway and he was like, it's Adrian. He was so distraught. And we talked about it and we said a little thing for Adrian, but it made me realize that, you know, pet death is often the first time we ever confront death or grief as kids or, or whatever it may be. So it's a really important relationship. And so that's incredibly valid because I think especially for little kids, whether it's a toad or their family pet, like that's their first experience with like, well, what does that mean? Where did they go? And and so as parents, it's important to, you know, acknowledge that and talk to them and not say like, oh, it's just a dog, you know, but I think that's so horrible when people say that. Oh, it's awful. I remember years and years and years ago, I think I was in my twenties and I can't remember where I read it, but it was a psychology book and it spoke about how every seven years is a growth spurt emotionally for, uh, for humans and how at seven years of age, uh, or roundabout then is when a lot of kids will start like night terrors or they'll start questioning reality versus fantasy. And for many children, that's when they lose a loved one, not just a pet, a, a grandmother or a great grandmother or someone. And they can develop night terrors because they're scared. They have a realization that there is this thing called death. And this piece of writing stuck with me forever. Because I, th I think I experienced that. And I was frightened. 
So yes, grief is grief. And I love that in your book, you share this story of little Adrian the Toad. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Adrian. Yes, may he rest in peace. (laughs) May he rest in peace. We've, We've been through that with ladybugs and caterpillars and many, many creatures since then. So it's, it's an ongoing, we live a little bit in the country, so it's, it's pretty common. But isn't that great about children, how they remind us of all this stuff that we just bypass sometimes? Cause it happened, like you said, there's toads everywhere in Texas and you they're smushed, but yeah, they do remind us of that innocence and the things that we tend to look over. Yes. When a friend loses a loved one, we often struggle for words to say or write, and some people find actions a more comfortable way to express their emotions, such as delivering food or flowers to show they care. What forms of expression did you find comforting after losing your mother and sister? And I thought your little write-up of helpful, not helpful on page 17, uh, things to do and say for someone who is grieving was truly helpful. So let's talk about that. So yeah, well, the reason the book's called So Sorry for Your Loss is because when my mom died, I found that phrase to be, it really made me angry. I found it to be lazy and cold and just didn't reflect how we were feeling. You know, so sorry for your lost condolences. That's what everybody says. And it just made me, you know, angry. And I've I've calmed down because I understand that, you know, people are just, it's very hard to talk about grief and a lot of people don't know what to say. So they go to those phrases. So at least they're saying something. So I'm not so angry at the phrase, but that's why I called the book that. But, you know, I appreciate one thing that somebody said after my sister died, because she died two years after my mom. And somebody said, you know, this is so tragic. My heart is breaking for you. And I, that's what I appreciate. It's somebody acknowledging you know, that it is tragic and it is heartbreaking. And I think people are scared to trigger a grieving person, but we already know it's tragic. (laughs) You're not really telling us anything we don't know. So I think it really acknowledging it, you don't have to say like, how are you even waking up in the morning? Like you don't have to say that, but, you know, acknowledge, I appreciated the, you know, this is so heartbreaking. Um, And I really love it when people will say, you know, if they didn't know my family, they'll say like, what was your sister's name? Like, I think that's so it's so simple and it's it's just such an acknowledgement of the person. So those things are helpful. What's not helpful is like time heals all wounds or, you know, um, they're in a better place. You know, things like that, I think, for most people who are grieving are very upsetting, right? Because they're not in a better place. I mean, whether you, be, you know, if you believe in heaven, or still, you'd rather them be here. <laughs> so it's a little bit tough to stomach that stuff. Oh, yes, absolutely. But I thought that chapter was really helpful and it did help answer a lot of questions. Now, you were with your mom when she passed, but you weren't able to be with your sister when she died. And that form of grief is different. It's so painful. It's shocking. Uh, So let's have that conversation. Yes. So yeah, with my mom, we knew, you know, we had the eight days of hospice and we kind of also before that knew that this was coming at some point Um, when it happened, it happened quickly, but we, yeah, we sat with her. We, we weren't, we were wondering what happened or, you know, we were right there Um, with my sister. She had suffered from alcoholism for years. So it was, it was a fear we always had, but she had been sober for a year. So it was a total shock when we got the phone call. Um, We just didn't, expected at all. She was, you know, 40 years old. And so it was very shocking. I was on an airplane. Um, and it just, it was a different kind of thing because I couldn't, you know, I wasn't holding her hand and there was a lot of mystery involved, which is really hard because 
you know, then I'm trying to piece together like, well, what happened and what, where, who was she with? Cause it, we didn't know. And so it, it had that piled on top of, you know, the grief that was already happening. So, you know, I think that when it, when it comes as a shock, it's, there's different things to grapple with. So that was hard. And I did go down a rabbit hole of trying to investigate like who was with her and what happened. And, um, and Dina, were you able to get those questions answered? A little bit. I mean, she, I think a lot of, um, alcoholics and people with substance abuse issues will die alone. And so my sister was in a hotel, she was alone. So there's not much, I mean, I got a little bit of answers, um, but not, you know, much, but I think in the end, it's just, you know, the, this, the simple truth is it was alcohol and, you know, that's what happened, but you know, there's a lot of guilt with that too. Yes, I understand. Uh, it's a really tough one. What I can tell you is that I'm a recovering alcoholic and have been for many, many years. And I want to say it really is up to the individual to get sober and stay sober. And that's the absolute truth. I'm sure you've already heard those words, but that's what I wanted to offer you. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, but it's it, it's nice to hear. And, I, you know, I think my parents especially struggled with that for years, just the guilt and what can we do and what, you know, it's really hard on everyone, including my sister. So, obviously. And I'm going to put an episode link in the show notes. It's from an episode I did with David Posis. It's called, his book was called The Weight of Air, a story of the lies about addiction and the truth about recovery. Sadly, David died a few months after our interview. But his book, it really stayed with me. His story stayed with me. So for anybody out there interested in recovery, particularly heroin addiction, please read David's book or at least listen to that episode. Okay, let's talk about something else. Let's talk about books. What are you currently reading, Dina? So I'm reading a lot of, um, I don't know if you know Margaret Rankle. She's a Southern writer and she writes She writes a column for the New York Times, but her third book is about to come out. So I'm going to actually interview her. So I'm deep into her work, but she writes really beautifully. She writes about nature, but well, she's really writing about, you know, life and, you know, marriage or, you know, becoming an empty nest or whatever's going on in her life, but through the lens of nature, it's very meditative, very beautiful. So I'm reading a lot of her work. And then um, our Eric Thomas is an essayist I love. So I'm about to read his new, start his new book. So I'm going from meditative nature to a very funny essayist. <laughs> so it'll be fun. I get to go to Nashville. So that's fun. Oh, lucky you. Dina, I loved your book. So sorry for your loss. Thank you. And we didn't talk about the cover. I love it. Thanks. Do you have any input on the cover design? My input. So the cover is a, you know, like a cat, two hands holding out a casserole. So that was actually the, the publisher's idea. But when they sent the first drafts of it, there was no nail polish on the hands. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Texas girl. So I was like, y'all need to airbrush some, some nail polish on there, please. So that was my input was the nail polish, but that was all them. You know what? You were right. It makes a big difference. It does. Yes. I was horrified. <laughs> Dina, I wish you ongoing success with your writing and I just loved your book. So sorry for your loss. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Bye. You've been listening to my conversation with Dina Gockman about her book, So Sorry for Your Loss, How I Learned to Live with Grief and Other Grave Concerns. To find out more about The Bookshop Podcast, go to thebookshoppodcast.com. 
and make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to the show. You can also follow me at Mandy Jackson Beverly on X, Instagram, and Facebook, and on YouTube at The Bookshop Podcast. If you have a favorite indie bookshop that you'd like to suggest we have on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you via the contact form at thebookshoppodcast.com. The Bookshop Podcast is written and produced by me, Mandy Jackson Beverly. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly, executive assistant to Mandy, Adrian Otterhan, and graphic design by Francis Parala. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.